Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode of Smart People Podcast is supported by Sidekick by HubSpot. With Sidekick, you can get powerful contact insight right in your inbox. Sidekick seamlessly integrates with your email so you can receive live notifications when someone opens and clicks on your emails and schedule emails to be sent when you're offline. Go to GetSidekick.com slash smart people to get your first month of Sidekick for free podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I am Chris Stemp. Thank you so much for joining us today on another great episode where we are tackling a topic that we have, we've talked about before, but there's a really great spin on it and we're backing it up with data. So in a sense, we're talking leadership, but here's the thing. We've all been taught the golden rule, right? Treat others as you would like to be treated. We've also been told that by doing that, you'll get ahead in life. Our parents raise us with the best intentions. They tell us to be nice to one another and not step on others to get ahead. But is that actually good advice? Is it better to have high moral character and put others first? Or is it a dog-eat-dog world where nice guys finish last? Well, we're going to answer that question this week and many more as we speak with Fred Keel. Fred is the co-founder of KRW International. He's a renowned leadership researcher, and he's the author of the new book, Return on Character, The Real Reason Leaders and Their Companies Win. What I loved about this book and about Fred's work is that he's not just guessing or talking about what he's seen, although that is part of it. But really, the main thing is him and his team conducted a landmark study of more than 100 CEOs and over 8,000 of those CEOs' employees. And what they were trying to find out is, what did the CEOs think of themselves and their leadership style? 
And then what did their subordinates think about the CEOs? And then they coupled that information with how the company or that segment was performing. Really interesting stuff, right? So finally, we can put some numbers to the debate on whether it pays to be naughty or nice. But you know me, that's not all we're going to cover. Another really cool thing we talk about is how humans are actually wired for morality. Fred believes, and he states that this has been proven through research and studies that are well known, that we are born morally good. He talks about how our need for connection means that we have to be morally good. We have to put others on par with our needs or else we won't be able to connect and therefore we will put ourselves at odds with our greatest need. That's just part of it. There's much more here in this episode that's fun and exciting and it'll fill that curious mind of yours. Don't forget to head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter. We got something coming there soon. I don't want to blow the whistle quite yet on it, but uh, if you're on that, we'll be sure to let you know, possibly even this week. And reach out to us on Twitter, at smartpeoplepod. Tell the world you listen to the show, connect with any of the guests that you've enjoyed, and let them know you heard it here on Smart People Podcast. So now please enjoy an interview with Fred Keel. Fred, thank you so much for being on the show. Really excited to have you on and talk to you about leadership and and more so character um, and what it takes to be a strong leader and have that that good, strong moral character. So thanks so much. I'm excited to talk about it. Good. Thanks. Glad to be here. So first, you know, I read in doing this research, one of the interesting things I read is that you are a prominent leadership researcher. And I'm I've never heard it from that angle. And I'm thinking, okay, so what does it mean to research leadership? Well, um, I didn't start out that way. I I have a doctorate in uh, psychology, counseling psychology, and I started my career many, many years ago um, in the mental health area. I had a clinical practice in the metropolitan market of Minneapolis-St. Paul, and um in the context there, one of my clients one day was for some family services was the vice chairman of a Fortune 500 company in the Twin Cities. And about six months after he had he and his family were discharged from family counseling, he started sending over his senior vice presidents. So this was a big computer high tech company, and so these were computer engineers and and. I was flattered that he was sending them to me, but I was very much in my medical model, and I tried to diagnose a mental, emotional, or behavioral disorder with these uh, in the, these engineers, these individuals, and they just weren't diagnosable. I mean, they were kind of rigid and saw the world in black and white terms and all of that, but but that's not diagnosable. And after about two or three of those, I called him up and I said, "Say, I said, I really appreciate you're trying to build my practice, but I said you're." you're wasting your corporate money. I said, these guys aren't diagnosable. And he'll never forget his his response. He says, the heck they aren't diagnosable. He <laughs> said, I'll diagnose them. He says, they're a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and then he got serious. He said, look, these are the best talent in the world that I can that I have here, but I can't get access to that talent because nobody will work with them. Mm. He said, they're so abrasive and so annoying to other people. He said that... Uh, that I can't get access to talent. He said, you impressed me as a young psychologist who claimed you know how to change behavior. He said, so 
figure it out. Wow. <laughs> and that's what got me into working with corporate executives was that challenge. And, uh, and this was early enough. It was way before the field was called executive coaching. So I ended up being one of the two or three pioneers that created that field of executive coaching. And over the next 10 years, um, I morphed completely out of the clinical practice and into forming a precursor of our current firm, KRW International. That was in the middle 80s. And in 1990, then we formed KRW International, which was really a premier executive coaching firm. And in fact, we were featured in uh, Fortune magazine cover story in 1993 called The Executive's New Coach. And to our knowledge, that's the first time that the business press used the metaphor of coach as someone who advised senior executives on their leadership skills. So we, we were in that space. We really led the creation of that space and, and in some ways dominated it for the better part of the 1990s. And then along uh, about early part of 2000s, I began to observe that the Clients that we had that seemed to get the best business results for people of high character, I began to notice that connection. Now, we'd always sort of assessed for that and, and dealt with that, but not in any kind of a structured kind of way. And that's what really got me into the research business is that I was really interested in seeing if, in fact, high character was a significant factor in in the bottom line and contributing business results. One of my clients at that time was a guy named Doug Lennick, and he was an executive vice president of American Express. He was in charge of the field force of American Express Financial Planning Division, had about 12,000 financial planners in his group. And he was one of the pioneers in using emotional intelligence tools to assess and train financial planners. One day he said to me, he said, you know, there's a subset of these financial planners, trainees, he said, that score really high on emotional intelligence skills, but there's one scale on the emotional intelligence model called integrity, and they score low on that one. He said, what do you make of that? And, you know, after about two seconds of thought, I said, well, Doug, what you've done is you've learned out a way to identify the, the potential con artists in our midst. Mm, yes. <laughs> If you think about con artists, they're people that are very emotionally intelligent, but they have no integrity. And, of course, he, he sorted them out. But the more we talked about that, the more we realized that maybe Dan Goldman's model of emotional intelligence had something missing, that there's a deeper form of intelligence that serves as sort of the foundation for all of the influencing skills. And the more we talked about that, more the more we saw that that seemed to be an, an intelligence that we called moral intelligence. We then uh, hired a researcher to go through all of the literature of, of uh, the past writers and thinkers on the subject of morality and, and human nature and child development and all of that. And after cons about two years of, of careful study, including the fields of philosophy and, and uh, developmental psychology and evolutionary psychology, and, and then into... Um, genetics and the neurosciences because they were starting in the early 2000s to have something to say about human nature and then finally we discovered the field of cultural anthropology which at this time had just a book had just been published called human universals and it was a study of what <clears throat> human cultures all around the world have in common in terms of their beliefs and their practices and what we discovered is that there's <clears throat> is that from the the neuroscientists, we discovered that human infants are, in fact, born to be moral. They were, 
we are social animals. It's so wired into our DNA that the first thing that a human infant does upon birth is search to connect with its mother's by looking at its mother's face and connect with them. Um, we are just intensely social animals. We are, are born to to be moral, to be caring and concerned for other people in our in our uh, group. Um, so with that finding, and then the understanding that cultural anthropologists told us that there are a certain set of, of uh, moral principles that parents teach their children all over the globe. It doesn't matter what the cultural context is. Parents all over the globe teach their children integrity. They teach them to tell the truth and keep their promises and stand up for what's right. They teach them to be responsible, that is, to own up to their own uh, mistakes and to accept the consequences of their own decisions and to have a concern for the common good. So those are sort of two moral principles of the head, integrity and responsibility. But parents all over the world also teach their children two moral principles of the heart, and that is that they teach them to be forgiving and to treat other people in their tribe who make mistakes with curiosity rather than shame and blame. And then they also teach them to be caring of other people, to treat other people as as people and individuals rather than as objects. And we reason once we found that out from the cultural anthropologists and understood that human infants are really born to be moral, we sort of made the leap forward and created a leadership model that said that if leaders honor these four moral principles in their leadership behavior, if they are people of integrity, they own up their own mistakes, they're responsible, they act in forgiving and caring ways for the for the people that work with them and for them, that we claimed and asserted that those are the leaders that would get the outstanding, better, long-term, sustained business results. And so, actually, uh, we wrote a book on that that was published by Wharton Business School Press in 2005. It was called Moral Intelligence. And that book got a lot of good press, a lot of, uh, and it's still in the second edition. It's in eight languages, so it's still selling well around the world. Um, but one of the reviewers called me up, I'll always remember that, After shortly after the book first came out, and he said, I know you're getting a lot of positive press on this. And he says, yeah, it's a well-written book. But he said, I, I have a little lesson in economics I'd like to give you. And I said, really, what's that? And he said, well, let me tell you, you think that all of this character stuff is really important in terms of creating value. But he tell you, what really creates value is the business model. And he said, if you have a good business model and it makes a lot of money, he said, all that culture stuff will fall into place. And he said, and even if it doesn't, as long as management stays legal, he said, it doesn't really make any difference. He said, it's nice to have, but it's just really icing on the cake. It's it's not really what creates value. And then he threw down the gauntlet and he said, besides, you don't have any data to support your claim in that book that leaders that behave in this way create more value. Well, that's when I became a leadership researcher. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we were going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> that compelled me then to, to find out who was right. Is this reviewer right? Is this stuff just icing on the cake nice to have but has no measurable impact on the bottom line? Or am I right? Or my co-author and I, are we right? Because we really believe that it does have an impact. And that's when I launched this research. We formed the KRW Research Institute as a separate arm from our consulting practice and set out to collect as much data as we could. And of course, we had to figure out, start at the beginning, how do you measure, how do you define business results, and how do you define character, and how do you measure both of those? And uh, But we had a couple of pilot projects, one with Costco Wholesale on 
in um, headquartered in near Seattle, and another with uh, the, the Weyerhaeuser company also in Seattle. And after those two pilot studies, we came out with a research design that I describe in, in detail in Appendix A of uh, of my book. So that your listeners are interested, if they can go there and find that out. Well, I want to I want to go. I do want to learn more about that study. But before, because I think it it is the hallmark, it's the foundation yeah. for a lot of this. But before right. we get there, because you've now, as you explained all that, I have notes and I'm like, well, this is the entire conversation because so many things you brought up I want to <laughs> get into. So I'm just going to touch on a few of these and sure. then we'll we'll jump into to what you were um, what you were just getting at. The first is this idea that, uh, you know, infants are born moral. And mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, It feels good. And I'll tell you, I've been interviewing people for about five years now. And there's this one interview that always stuck with me. It was like number 12. We interviewed a guy named Anthony Daniels, and he went uh, off a pen name, something Dalrymple. And he he wrote a book. uh, It's called like Our Society, What's Left of It. Anyways, he was a prison doctor and psychologist. So he obviously saw the worst in humans Mm -hmm. and his, I don't remember the details, but I do remember his opinion was, you know, we're not inherently good. We're not inherently bad. We're just shaped throughout our lives. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I believe that. And I, I like to believe yours more for a number of reasons, especially because (laughs) I just had a son and you know, you see when he comes out and does look at you and he looked at his, his mom. And when he smiles you just, you feel mm-hmm. the only time he's upset is when he's not connecting. And mm-hmm. so I never heard it in that, in that idea of there we're moral because we want to connect. And if we act mm-hmm. immorally, we will lose that connection. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what the research on that aspect found out? Well, what, what your previous uh, interviewee I think was probably coming from was a, a view of human nature that was popular in the 1980s and early 90s that human infants are a blank slate, that they're born with a blank slate, not any propensity propensity to either be good or to be bad or to go in one way or another, but are entirely shaped by their uh, experiences as they grow up. And that blank slate idea has been really proven to be wrong. Human infants are really clearly born with a inborn need to cooperate, to connect, and to participate with other human beings. We are social animals at our core DNA level. Having said that, we are also animals that are very self-concerned. So we have these two sides to our nature. We have the one side of us that really wants to promote the common good for my social group, for my family, for my tribe. And then we have the other side of each individual is self-concern. And and when those two are in balance, you have a pretty successful uh, social context and pretty successful individuals. When either of them get out of balance, if you have somebody who is so um, self-effacing and only concerned for the common social good, you get somebody probably like Mahatma Gandhi, who was a great person, but I think his personal life wasn't too much to be emulated. But And if you go the other way, then you get the kind of greed mongers that are, uh, you know, I mean, extremes are people like Hitler and people like that. But but in the corporate world, the extremes are like Bernie Madoff and others that are sitting in jail today because of the way that they went after their own uh, satisfaction, their own 
uh, success at the expense of the common good of others. So we have these two sides to our nature, and that, that you know is nothing really new. I mean, philosophers and theologians for years have have seen the, the two sides to human nature, and some religious beliefs emphasize the the negative side, and some emphasize the positive side. But um, I think it's it's pretty well agreed that we have both of those sides to our nature. So. We're born both to be self-concerned and to be concerned and care for the common good. And how, which one of those sides is emphasized or it gets out of balance with the other is uh, dependent upon our, our environment and our experiences as we grow up. We found that the strong character leaders in our study were ones who had good models in their childhood growing up years. They had influential adults and, and parents and bosses early in their career who were people of strong character who were their first response was to be concerned for the common good and their second response was to look uh, be concerned on their own of their own side rather than mm. the other way around i like that but now if we're born to have both of those sides does, what does that mean for the argument that we're born moral because if if the side that is too self-involved, self-concerned is, you know, the uh, prominent side, wouldn't that kind of tend to lead us to be immoral because we would do things like steal well, and rape and all that? Well, we are we are born to be self-concerned, and when that gets out of hand, it it, is, it becomes immoral. But we are born to be moral, and, and in this sense, if you take the, the little infant like your three-year-old, three-month-old son – and put them in a very supportive sort of a hot house where they get all of their emotional and physical needs met, they will grow up to be moral, responsible adults who will not grow up to be self-concerned rapists and, mm. and crime-oriented. So the propensity is to go with the side of being moral because it's so important for every human being to be connected. And being very self-concerned is a is a, a natural deconnector. Now let's take a break for a moment from one of our sponsors, lynda.com. All right, guys, why don't you challenge yourself to learn something new with a free 10-day trial to lynda.com. lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business. All of their courses are taught by experts, which we love here, and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find work-life balance, invest in a hobby, or improve upon your current job skills, lynda.com has something for everyone. So sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash smart people. Here's what you'll get. Unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, access to view tutorials on tablets and iPhone, plus Android mobile devices, and access to new courses that are added every week. You've heard me mention some of the courses I've taken. A few that I like are Getting Things Done, Business Writing Fundamentals, and Breaking Out of a Rut. Do something good for yourself and sign up for a free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash smart people. That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash smart people. Now back to the show. Yeah. No, the, okay. That makes sense. And I like that. And I feel that. It's funny, as you were mentioning that the Mahatma Gandhi versus, you know, Bernie Madoff, I think 
oftentimes, you know, I'll be talking to people recently and they'll say, you know, you need to focus on yourself a little bit more because I, I tend um, not. And, and when it comes to things like, um, my, you know, making money, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not really concerned. You know, I currently I work at a nonprofit. I make mm-hmm. uh, not a lot of money, a quarter or more of what I made when I was in finance or even with this podcast, not really trying to monetize it, just enjoying yeah, it and providing sure. it to the public. Right. So I can see the duality and the two sides and really needing to find a balance oftentimes. Yeah. You don't want, you don't want your three month old son to not have uh, sufficient food and clothing or right. to not, not to be able to go to good schools. Right. You, know, you, you want that. But what do you want your three month old son to say about you when, He's at your funeral and your eulogy, and he's a mature man, and he's remembering his father. He's going to remember more probably the sides of you that expressed concern for others and was not the side that was concerned about money. That's such a great point. I I recently um, got certified as a life coach, and I don't do it too much as, you know, for, for money, mm-hmm. but I just, I loved it. I wanted to learn how to help people, et cetera. Yeah. And that was one of the visualizations that we did was, um, you know, either picture yourself at your funeral or picture yourself as a, a, a grandfather or grandmother and you see your mm-hmm. kids out, you know, what would they say about you? What did you teach them? How are they living in reflection of you? And mm-hmm. man, that really cuts to how you want to live your life. You know, David Brooks, uh, the New York columnist, recently wrote a book called The Road to Character, which is a great companion book to my book. But in it, he talks about the two eulogies that that you have. Uh, There's your career eulogy or your resume eulogy and your legacy eulogy. And and, uh, most people want the legacy eulogy to be about who they were as people and how they connected with other people and not about how much money they made or how many career promotions they got. Yeah, I would really encourage everyone to kind of take a, take a minute when you get a break and think about that um, and just decide what's important. I think it really helps put things in perspective. Yeah. But um, moving on, there was another thing that really struck me there. And, and you said when you were talking about um, abrasive I guess I'll call them bosses because, you know, I've worked for bosses my whole life, but abrasive leaders. Yeah. um, I think a lot of times the common belief is, yes, it's great to be an emotionally intelligent or morally intelligent leader, but the real winners, the, the Steve Jobs and the Elon Musks, they're eccentric kind of wackos that, that, that don't necessarily connect with the human but that's what drives them to greatness. And I mean, I've worked for these abrasive, really intelligent bosses. Um, and I'll tell you, they get less production out of me because I've also mm-hmm. had the fantastic bosses. But I do look at them and think, well, maybe it's just because they got so much going on up there about the business that they don't concern themselves too much with the human aspect. I don't know. That's the Steve well, Jobs abrasiveness mm-hmm. kind of really caught right. me there. Steve. Both Steve Jobs and Elon Musk are outliers. Okay. You know, the number of times that these kind of geniuses come by in a century is, you know, probably less than 10 individuals that you can, can name. You know, Henry Ford was another, and he was no, you know, sweet man either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, those aside, they, they have created business models that are so powerful that generate incredible profits to everybody 
that in spite of their abrasiveness and sometimes their very low character habits and poor character habits, they are still able to produce this great value. I'm not saying that that character of leadership is the only thing that creates value. The business model is very important. And also there's a, the black swan factor. Macroeconomic factors can swoop in and, and negative ones, tsunamis and terrorist attacks and everything else can wipe out some of the best companies. So business results is a complex soup made up of macroeconomic factors, the competitiveness and quality of the business model, and given that those two are, are you know, in going in the right direction, then what really makes a difference is character, mm-hmm. character of leadership. There's this bad idea, though, in our country that I'm trying to put to rest finally with data. That bad idea is what you've just talked about, is that the most successful leader is the one that is a no-nonsense, kind of a hard ass that doesn't much care about people, doesn't do anything to get sued or in jail because of the way they're treated, but really just focus solely on driving to the bottom line. Now, you mentioned that you've had a boss like that, and it didn't particularly motivate you. Well, we've got hard data in our study to show that it doesn't motivate anybody, Hmm. that those kind of leaders, if they make a profit and are successful, they are doing so in spite of their their unpleasant ways of dealing with people, Hmm. that when you add strong character leadership to the equation, it turns out in our study that those leaders bring in over five times, nearly five times, return on assets to the bottom line, as do those self-focused, hard-driving leaders. And we also found out our strong character leaders, these are not uh, opposing qualities being hard-driving and caring for people that are Strong character leaders were all leaders that were very hard-driving, no-nonsense, held people accountable, but did it in a respectful, caring way. You know, I, I this this podcast isn't about me, but I got goosebumps, and it only happens, I'd say it happens, you know, every 20 episodes or so when something really hits home. I worked two jobs in finance. One I was at for almost six years, and one I was at for six months. They were very similar, similar pay. The biggest difference was my boss, and mm-hmm. I'm not uh, – I didn't like the field ever through seven years, and, and that's why I got out. But yeah. the one – the first one I had, I respected so much, and to this day I respect him in the way that – you know, one time I screwed up. I remember this, and he said, look, that's not like you. You won't do it again. Don't beat yourself up anymore. Let's get back to work. And I said, you know what? Mm -hmm. That's very cool. The other one came in and berated me in front of people, and I left two weeks later. And Mm -hmm. when you talk about value creation, the amount of value I created by not leaving that the first company, I mean, I was a top analyst almost every year, it's exponentially higher. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I just see it in my personal life. Right. Well, you're a good, great case case study <laughs> and, and example of that. And what you've mentioned is is that boss behaved aligned with one of our four moral principles: forgiveness. Mm. Yeah. He treated he treated you with curiosity. With he did not shame and blame you. You know, he was he was very respectful about it and uh, moved on. Yeah. And that's what strong character leaders treat people in that way. They show that they are interested in their success as well as what they can do for the company. That's the way they show compassion. And you probably felt you could always trust that first leader to tell you the truth. What he was saying you believed was true. And I'm not, I don't know, maybe the other guy told the truth too. But nah, he was you, all messed up. <laughs> you might have had some concerns about that. 
And I bet that first leader was a, a person who would readily own up to his own mistakes if he oh, made them. Oh, man. He's just one of the best guys ever. Yeah. And I, and I, so that's why I so much believe in what you talk about because I've seen it. And I, I yeah. want to clarify or I'd like you to clarify the four moral principles um, right. because they are the foundation. And then I want to talk about is, there, is morality and character or strong character the same thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, four moral principles, again, are the ones that we uh, pulled out of the cultural anthropology <clears throat> literature. And what we did is we came up with the behavioral indicators that we thought that leaders would show as they demonstrated those. So we asked ourselves, what behaviors would a leader show by demonstrating integrity? That's one of the four moral principles. Well, the, the leader would be telling the truth. They would keeping promises, would be standing up for what's right, and so on. There are two or three more. And, and likewise, we went through all four of the moral principles. The second was responsibility. What does it mean to be responsible? How is that behavior demonstrated in the work environment? Well, responsible people are ones that, that accept the consequences of their decisions. They are people who own up to their own mistakes. They are people who have a sense of responsibility for the common good and, and will demonstrate that in their, in their behavior. And then the other two, forgiveness and compassion. What does forgiveness look like? Well, you just gave a perfect example of what forgiveness mm -hmm. looks like when you described how your boss treated you when you made a mistake. And and that boss is another indicator is bosses who uh, demonstrate forgiveness also tend to focus on what's right rather than what's wrong. And then uh, caring for people as people, not treating people as objects, but treating them as people with, with lives and showing respect and care and concern and showing an interest in their personal development. So those are the four moral principles. We, we started out with 65 behavioral indicators spread among those four, and through research we narrowed it down to 26. And uh, each, each uh, of the four has four or five, six behavioral indicators. And once we got random samples of employees to rate their CEO and their senior team on those 26 behavioral indicators, then we came up with an algorithm for combining those ratings into one score so that we came up with a way of computing a character score for a CEO and for a senior team on a, between a zero and a hundred. And uh, we did that. Uh, we enrolled a little over a hundred CEOs in our study and we ended up with a complete character data sets on 84 of them, on them and their teams. Uh, that included the ratings from over almost 8,500 randomly selected employees. And so we have this big database that we're very confident in it, and we can now benchmark somebody new coming in. We can have their employees assess how often they tell the truth, keep their promises, etc. And we can show where they are on what we call a character curve. We can benchmark where they are, and, and if they are less than being up near the top, there's a lot of opportunity for them to bring more value to the bottom line by changing their character reputation. Let's talk about that because, again, now that we're talking about the study, so you had uh, 100 CEOs and over 8,000 employees. Were these employees of the CEOs? Yeah, they're employees in their companies, right. So did the study, was part of the purpose of the study to see how employees responded to the CEOs and then you could basically judge... I mean, I don't want to say how good the CEOs were, but how their character, their buildup. Well, this was the whole point was to, to assess how employees view the character of the CEO and the senior leadership team. You know, when you think of somebody that you describe as a, 
as a strong character or a highly principled person is because of their behavior mm -hmm. of how they treat other people. It's not because of their intentions. We probably all, basically, most everybody intends to behave well with others, but it's how you actually behave that gets is a reflection of your true character. So in order to study the connection between the character of the leadership team and the bottom line, we had to figure out a way to measure it and to collect that. And it seemed to us that the most accurate way to measure it is through a random, you reap the, what we call the wisdom of the crowd, select a random sample of 300 employees and send them the survey asking them under anonymous conditions to, to rate how often the CEO and the senior team tells the truth and mm -hmm. keeps their promises and acts forgiving and, and so on. And that's how we were able to rank order these 84 CEOs and their senior teams on their character scores. And then we studied the differences between those at the top 10 that were viewed as the strongest character uh, leaders and teams and compared those to those at the bottom of the character curve for the, who employees said these are senior team members and CEOs that tell us the truth about half the time. Well, mm -hmm. it means they lie to them about half the time. Mm -hmm. They cared for them, treat, clearly treated them as objects almost all the time. They were, you know, them. their concern for them was not as people. Whereas those at the top of the character curve, it was just the opposite. They described them the way you described your boss that you liked so well. Mm -hmm. And when we then looked at, at the business results of those two groups, the high character senior teams and their CEOs brought in nearly five times the return on assets, the bottom line is to the weak character ones. They also, of course, enjoyed a much higher level of workforce engagement, and they had a much lower risk profile. That wow. is, their companies had far fewer legal incidents and, and uh, lower audit fees and that sort of thing. I'm really interested in the, the ones that came in that top 10 or even the very yeah. top, you know. What uh -huh. did you see? I mean, what what is that like? What I I don't know exactly um, what you were asking, but I'm just fascinated by it. to be that the best one. You know, what, what did that look like? Well, let me tell you, we we asked all the employees that we surveyed on all of these an open ended question, uh, and two or three, but the one that. I found the most interesting was their responses to our question of what does it feel like to work in this organization? And for those top character leaders, 90% of those comments were effusively positive. It was like, I look forward to coming to work every day. You know, I am so grateful for the leadership that X provides it, you know, the most marvelous man or marvelous woman. We had women in our study too. Um, all these positive things. So much so, when I read those, I found myself thinking, gosh, if I could have found somebody less CEO like this to work for early in my career, I would have gone to work for him in a heartbeat. Exactly. Yeah. And now a word from one of this week's sponsors. We are sponsored once again by Igloo. Thank you so much, Igloo, for supporting Smart People Podcast. Listen up, everyone. You really do need to check out Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work. Share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. Everything you need to do within your team, you can do on Igloo. It's easy to use and easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users. And it's built using responsive design, which means that everything you can do at your desk, you can now do on the go on your phone or tablet. The responsive design is meant to look great on all your devices. 
Whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or a fast-growing business overwhelmed by apps, create an intranet that matches your brand's look and feel, simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. Check it out today. Chris and I use it for Smart People Podcast, and it's absolutely fantastic to have all our files in one place, all the information that we need. It sits within our own personal intranet. It's amazing not having to rifle through emails or files and folders cluttered on different computers. Give Igloo a shot and see what it can do for you. Sign up now and try it out for free at igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. That's igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. Sign up today and invite up to 10 of your favorite coworkers to try it with you. And now back to the show. Wow, that's really amazing. And and it, it helps because I, I mean, I hear it. We get a lot of emails because we talk a lot about work and entrepreneurship and, you know, leadership and a lot of those business mm-hmm. in, on this podcast. And a lot of people talk about their dissatisfaction with work. Oh, and yeah. I, I think so much of it is this leadership or we hear a lot about culture. One question I have, and it, I'm not sure if you've, you've come across it, but is this at all a... Um, I don't even want to say generational, but almost an evolution of our business or our work slash life or, you know, really our uh, capitalistic society. I mean, is it the fact that in the past we were mostly industrialized, just, you know, do your widgets or make your widgets and you are an object. And now we're in this, you know, thinking environment where you have to think and therefore um, you have to be treated differently. Is it a cultural shift, I guess, is what well, I'm asking. I, I think there's a cultural shift coming, but there's been previous cultural shifts <laughs> happened also. In, you know, in the 30s, when unions came into existence and, and all of that, they, it was to protest being treated as objects and being worked 60 hours a week and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, and the, and the culture sort of shifted towards a more reasonable way of treating people. And then um, in the late 70s, early 80s, another shift came in that a lot of the big companies up until that time had been led by the f- members of the families that had founded some of the big companies. And there was, and many of them were then no longer leading and they were bringing in professional managers. So the whole professional management field was really blossoming. And there were two obscure economists who wrote a very a paper that had a very negative impact. They they created what this is getting pretty technical, but field an idea called agency theory. And the agency theory, from the economic standpoint, was the idea that we can no longer trust that the leaders of these organizations have our interests as owners at heart. So we need to when we hire professional managers, we're going to have to make sure that as agents of our firm, that they're they're, uh, motivated by the same things we're motivated for because our assumption is is they're greedy, only concerned about themselves, and they'll steal us blind if we don't make sure that we uh, hem them in and and, uh, control their their behavior in that way. And that spawned the whole uh, field of executive compensation getting out of hand and stock options and all that. And, of course, that was combined along with, with Reagan coming in as a president and all of the other great things that he did. Some of the terrible things that he he did is that he really deregulated a lot of things that, that probably should have stayed regulated. And uh, it really launched the whole greed is good kind of cultural shift. 
That's gotten way out of hand. In the 1970s, the average CEO of a big Fortune 500 company made something like 25 to 30 times more than the lowest paid worker did. And at this point, you know, depending on how you compute it, it's somewhere between 250 and 400 times is the average CEO compensation, which nobody can justify as being fair. Um, the workforce everywhere, it creates a real distance between respect and how you you care for the senior management of big organizations when they come in as stars and they, you know, walk out with, well, there's been horribly egregious examples of mm -hmm. CEOs that have come in and, and been there just for 18 months or so, got fired and take out $120 million or something like that. Yeah. Bob Nardelli did that at Home Depot. Um, so there's a number of cases like that. So the cultural shift now that I think is coming, and I'm hoping to you know, be a, a big voice in this through my research and my book, is that the millennials are saying uh, we have a whole group of young people coming up that are in their early 30s and 20s, and they're saying this is bullshit. You know, this isn't fair. And furthermore, I'm not going to work for people I don't respect and care for. <laughs> and they are just buying into the social contract that the baby boomers and the Gen X people did before them and and feel much freer to do what they want to do on their own and 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 they're also keeping their lifestyle um, you know less expensive yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that they don't have to be dependent upon uh, these kind of companies so and and then the whole thing with social media and transparency is just it's really a cultural shift is coming where where leaders are going to have to be fair, they're going to have to be transparent, they have to tell the truth, or they'll get punished quickly and immediately in the marketplace by their employees and their customers. You know, I got to tell you, I mean, oftentimes I just take people for what they say at their word, but what you're saying I know to be true personally because it you're talking about what I've done. And I mean, I'm, I'm 31 Actually, I'm 32 ah. tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think. Once you, you know, get past a certain age, you just stop yeah. counting. But, right. um, you know, in the in that millennial age range, just at the end or at the beginning, I guess you could say. But um, so I I was in the transition. Or I saw the transition where uh, people were saying, oh, millennials are lazy or they're flippant ah. or they're they, yeah. they they're indecisive or they'll just leave at the drop of a hat. And what blew my mind, all my friends really have great jobs. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. you know, a, a great environment that I grew up in and went to school. Um, and, and they will be loyal, but they'll also, mm -hmm. if you're not, or if you don't care about who we are, and maybe it's because we were raised by, you know, and I get, of course I'm generalizing, but parents that were yeah. there for us and provided, mm -hmm. we, we will not be loyal back just because you're paying us. Right. And right. it seemed mm -hmm. like this, instead of saying, wow, we need to look at what we're doing as a company. Uh, leaders, CEOs, bosses would say, well, we'll just find somebody who understands what loyalty is. Yeah. Well, my my big hope is based on what I see and what you're saying is true about you and, and your friends, your millennials, because guess what? Ten years from now, you guys are going to own the C-suite. Yeah. I'm telling you, I'm excited for that. I really and I can't am. wait. <laughs> I, I, you know, and it's no knock on. Look, I, this isn't bashing anybody. I mean, I, I don't mean it like that. I do think it is a shift for so many things. You know, cultural and. I think it um, is a shift too. I mean, I'm old enough. I'm older than the baby boom generation, actually. Yeah. So I've observed the whole baby boom thing come into place and the idealism of of all of them. Mm -hmm. 
And frankly, I am so terribly disappointed in the baby boom generation. They became a narcissistic, and of course, this is broad generalizations, but in general, the baby boomers became very self-focused, very self-concerned, and they're still in that mode. They're now all concerned about who's going to pay for our retirement and, and all of that, and you know what? I have I have children that are in your age range, mm-hmm. so I have uh, I have three millennial children mm. that, uh, that I know and spend a lot of time with, and, and they do not feel good about baby boomers. They can't wait till they are retired and off the scene. Yeah, and what's interesting is, given that many millennials were were raised by baby boomers, yeah, you know, right, so right. it's like maybe maybe that's what it is. I don't know, but like, and I have nothing. But the best in regards to the their parenting style. I mean, I, right. I really do think when it came to that, uh, their yeah. number yeah. one focus was making sure their kids did better yep. than they did and had more than they did. Yeah, yeah, they did a good job parenting. So um, that was a little off topic, but I, I love this kind of stuff. And and I also I want to end on you have a great now that we've covered kind of character and morality, which I'm assuming we never quite got to it, but are pretty much the same thing. Is that correct? Right, right. Morality is a field of of, uh, philosophy, and we approach our whole subject business from what can be measured. Morality can't be measured, but how you treat other people can be measured, and we think that how you treat other people is a pretty clear reflection of your character. Great. And so um, the last thing I want to touch on is there's a portion of your book, and we mentioned it uh, in the interview. I mentioned it, but the book is Return on Character, The Real Reason Leaders and Their Companies Win. It goes into much more depth than we can go on this podcast, and it has the data plus great stories. I just very much recommend it. But there's a portion where you talk about how we can assess our own character and then how to Mm -hmm. improve it. And even if we're not a boss or a leader, how do we do that? Well, first of all, to make any changes or, or improve your character, you need to to start from the standpoint of understanding what your character is, how it's perceived, what's your reputation, and how you treat other people. And frankly, that's quite a, quite a challenge for you to find that out because most people won't readily and easily tell you that. If you have three or four really good close friends and you make it really safe for them and you bring up stuff and, and ask them, you know, do I behave in these ways? You might be able to get some, you know, clear picture of, of um, how you actually behave towards other people. But the fact is, is how you treat other people is a matter of long-term ingrained habits and, mo- and habits by nature are behaviors that you have that you're unaware of that you're showing. You, you, Show very little awareness every time you come to a stop sign and put your foot on the brake. It's a habit. You just automatically do that. You don't stop and think about it. Um, And how you treat other people is a matter of habit. You probably have known people that you you and others would say, well, that person has sharp elbows. I guarantee you that that person does not know they have sharp elbows. They are unaware, and people work around that. Exactly. They they don't bother to confront them or – to give them feedback on that or anything else. They just work around it. They either avoid them or they work around it in some way. So it's, it's, it is a challenge to find out. Um, we, of course, through our consulting division, offer a scientifically valid way of, of you finding out through a, you know, a scientific survey of people that work closely with you or people in your family life. Um, we don't offer that on our website as a service, but you can get your listeners can get in contact with us through our website which, by the way, is called returnoncharacter.com. And there is a tool on our website that 
um, 65 questions that if you answer them through an algorithm, a predictive analytics algorithm, it will predict, give you a, a range of where your character score probably is if you were to survey other people, but it's an educated guess, and it's you know it's better than no information, but it's not necessarily 100 uh, percent accurate either. Um, so those are the only ways I know of of really finding out and getting a reading on on your characters by you know asking friends and people you trust to talk to or having us conduct a real uh, valid survey for you. But once you find out, then the second step is deciding, is this something I want to change? I mean, if I got lower scores than I expected on telling truth or on integrity or on caring for people, um, is that something that's important to me to change? You know, And that gets into the whole kinds of questions we asked earlier about legacy, mm-hmm. uh, your legacy. Is that something I want to be known for when I'm old in the end of my life or not? Um, you have to find the fuel in order to make those kind of personal changes. These habits are difficult to change, and how you got to become aware of them, and then you got to figure out how important it is. Uh, sometimes it's people make transformational changes in their habits just based on on finding some really important reason for wanting to to make that change. Um, so once you find that out, and if you have the real uh, you know, fuel for making that change or really wanting to, then you need to go through a process which we lay out in the book. There's a six-step process, I think, in Chapter 7 uh, that takes you right through it. You have to then, you know, be really clear about what what does it look like? How would I behave differently and what would, would I look like as a person if I were to change this particular character habit? And once you get that clearly figured out, then you need to do sort of a an excavation, an underground study of trying to understand why don't I behave that way now? What I'm behaving in other ways right now, and what are the hidden sources that's motivating that behavior? And and until you root those out, you probably won't be successful in changing. But once you get all that work done, then the only way to really change is to enlist the help of other people and to go public with it, to to share with your close friends and your spouse or whoever the three or four people that really care for you and ask for their help and ask for their constant feedback and go public and make a commitment to them that this is something you're working on to change. I really like that last part about going public. I think that, you know, accountability, I'm a big, big believer in. And I, I, you know, I'm really interested. I'm going to do this now because, and I encourage everyone else to, because oftentimes we don't see our blind spots, but that is the area of growth. I mean, we've all mostly uh, known or worked for people that we we just think, do you not see how much of a jerk you're being? Like this is great. Or, you know, how impossible you are or whatever. (laughs) And they don't see it. So no, they don't. Yeah. Well, again, Fred, thank you so much. The book is return on character. The real reason leaders and their companies win this is incredible stuff. I want to help, uh, you know, change this conversation as well. Is there anywhere else? Please actually mention your website again, um, where yes. people can find you and anywhere else you think uh, people should check out. Well, you can obviously, if you Google my name, you'll come up with a lot of uh, references of previous books and a TEDx talk that I gave as well. But the um, most direct route is to go to our website, returnoncharacter.com. ReturnOnCharacter.com. We will link to that at SmartPeoplePodcast.com with a summary of this episode because there's a lot of great stuff. And if you need it in written form, it'll be there. Fred, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Have a great day. 
Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Fred Keel. His fantastic book, Return on Character, The Real Reason Leaders and Their Companies Win, can be found on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you do decide to purchase it through Amazon, please use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. We get a small but very helpful kickback from Amazon, and it comes to no cost to you. So if you want to support the show, that's one of the easiest ways to do it. Another way to support the show is by heading over to iTunes and Stitcher and leaving a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach the show, you can shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. As always, we have great guests coming up, so stay tuned, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks to Igloo for sponsoring this episode of Smart People Podcast. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It gives you the flexibility to get your work done how you want, where you want, and on whatever device you want. It's built with easy-to-use apps like file sharing, calendars, social news feeds, and task management. Igloo is the cloud platform that can help you do your best work. Get your free trial today at igloosoftware.com smartpeople and invite up to 10 of your favorite coworkers. <laughs>